This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. A shadow hangs over Argentina and its literature. Like many of the adolescent democracies of the southern cone, the country is haunted by the spectre of recent dictatorships and the memory of violence there is still raw. Argentina's 20th century was scarred by decades of conflict between leftist guerrillas and state and military forces. The last of many coups took place in 1976, three years after Mariana Enriquez was born, and the military dictatorship it installed lasted until 1983. The dictatorship was a period of brutal repression and state terrorism, and thousands of people were murdered or disappeared. Since the dictatorship fell, Argentina has lived its longest period of democracy in recent history. Generations, including Marianas, have lived their early lives under the yoke of dictatorship and they have come of age in democracy. In Mariana Enriquez's stories, Argentina's particular history combines with an aesthetic many have tied to the Gothic horror tradition of the English-speaking world. Latin America has a Gothic tradition as well that overlaps with what we're used to thinking of as magical realism. Enriquez is the heir, perhaps, of Argentine Gothic, Cortazar, Borges, Art, and Silvina Ocampo. But Enriquez's literature conforms to no genre, and Gothic is only one corner of the map of her aesthetic. What there is of Gothic horror in her stories mingles with and is intensified by their sharp social criticism. Haunted houses and deformed children exist on the same plane as extreme poverty, drugs and criminal pollution. Her characters occupy an Argentina scarred by the dirty wars of the 1970s and 80s a country whose return to democracy was marked by economic instability, hyperinflation and precarious infrastructure. A nation that even in this decade has seen egregious instances of femicides and violence against women. Almost all of Enriquez's protagonists, in fact, are women. And in these stories, we get a sense of the contingency and danger of occupying a female body, though these women are not victims. Welcome. Why don't you sit, uh, move over to there so we can have Mariana between us. Welcome to Outriders at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, and specifically Outriders Argentina. And welcome to Kevin McNeil, who has just read us that wonderful passage and to Mariana Enriquez. So please just give them one more round of applause. Hi. My name's Nick Barley, and I'm director of the festival, and it's my great privilege to uh, introduce today's event. And the words that you just heard there, read by Kevin McNeil, were the words of a translator named Megan McDowell. Uh, I had the privilege of reading Mari Mariana Enriquez's book of short stories uh, just after Christmas, but I read it in proof form, and it wasn't until recently that the translator's note attached in the book uh, w was available to me, and, and that was what you heard. 
Megan McDowell, the translator of Mariana's work, is one of the most insightful and exciting translators working in Latin America today. And it's she who introduces us to so many young and exciting Latin American writers, including Mariana herself. So, uh, Mariana, uh, I wanted us to hear that, really, to set the context for what we're about to go into today, which is a journey through contemporary Argentina. A journey through an Argentina which is haunted by the, uh, the, the dictatorships and the disappearances, but which is very alive with literary, uh, literature of today. Yeah. So, let's, first of all, uh, uh, tell me about your book, Things We Lost in the Fire. Yeah, it's, um, it's a book of short stories that are basically, they're very political, but also they're genre stories, horror stories. And as, as uh, the, transla the translator note says, uh, almost all the protagonists are women. That was not something in entirely intentional, it just happened. I think the women theme was in the air and I kind of picked it like with an antenna. And uh, uh, yeah, but it's also born in a, I think in a context of many, there's a lot of literature being produced in Argentina in particular, in Latin America in general. And uh, it's a very alive scene. And I think it has, I hope it has that kind of vitality. Although it's very gloomy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, as Megan McDowell explained in that introduction, it comes out of a kind of gothic or a horror tradition, and, and yet it's very contemporary as well. Um, yeah. Some of the stories in uh, Things We Lost in the Fire are quite shocking. Yeah. Uh, just to give a little bit of context before we go into the Outriders story, I wonder if we could just hear uh, a, a short section from one of the stories from Things We Lost in the Fire. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps read us a, a sentence or two in, in Spanish first. I know okay. the, the weather's blowing us around, but blow some Spanish into our brains okay. first <laughs> okay. and then, then something in English okay and it will be not only Spanish but you know millennial style a bit on the <laughs> on the phone and a bit on the book la primera fue la chica del subte había quien lo discutía o al menos quien discutía su alcance, su poder su capacidad de desatar las hogueras por sí sola eso era cierto, la chica del subte solamente predicaba en las seis líneas del tren subterráneo de la ciudad y nadie la acompañaba, pero resultaba inolvidable. Her face and arms had been completely disfigured by deep, extensive burns. She talked to the passengers about how long it had taken her to recover, about the months of infections, hospitals, and pain. Her mouth was lipless and her nose had been sloppily recon reconstructed. She had only one left eye, the other was a hollow of skin, and her whole face, head and neck were a maroon mask crisscrossed by spider webs. On the nape of her neck, she still had one lock of long hair left, which emphasized the mask-like effect. It was like the only part of her head the fire hadn't touched. Nor had it reached her hands, which were dark and always a little dirty from handling the money she begged for. Her method was audacious. She got on the train, and if there weren't many passengers, if almost everyone had a seat, she greeted each of them with a kiss on the cheek. Some turned their faces away in disgust, even with a muffled shriek. Others accepted the kiss and felt good about themselves. Some just let the revulsion raise the hair on their arms. And if she saw this, in summer, when people's skin was bare, 
She'd caress the scared little hairs with her grabby fingers and smile with her mouth that was a slash. Some people even got off the train if they saw her get on. They already knew her routine and wanted to avoid the kiss from that horrible face. To make matters worse, the subway girl wore tight jeans, see-through blouses, even high-heeled sandals when it was hot out. She wore bracelets on her wrists and little gold necklaces hung around her neck. For her to flaunt the sensuous body seemed inexplicably offensive. When she begged for money, she was very clear she wasn't saving up for plastic surgery. There was no use. She would never get her normal face back, and she knew it. She only needed money to cover her expenses for rent, for food. No one would give her work with a face like that. And always, when she finished telling her audience about her days in the hospital, she named the man who had burned her, Juan Martin Posse, her husband. She'd been married to him for three years. Thank you. Women with faces disfigured by their husbands and then who, who choose to remain disfigured as an act of political uh, resistance. Yeah. Uh, mothers whose, whose children are killed uh, and, and who are, choose to allow them to be killed uh, so as to have fewer children. These are some of the characters that populate these extraordinary Gothic stories. And this is the kind of landscape which it's possible to see when you visit Argentina today. And, and I was lucky enough to do that last year in the planning of what has become Outriders. So for those of you who don't know, Outriders is a project that the Book Festival initiated last year, which involves, in its potted version at least, five journeys across the Americas. Five pairs of writers, each pair including one Scot and one writer from the local territory, journeying through part of the Americas and telling us about what they see. That's Outriders. And this is one of five events in which writers are talking about their journeys. Um, we decided, in this case, that it would be interesting, given Argentina's history of magic realism and, and, and its extraordinary uh, folk history, to invite Kevin McNeil to make a journey together with Mariana Enriquez. So, Kevin, uh, we invited you, and together you and Mariana travelled in April, I think it was. Uh, May, 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 I think. May. Yeah. So, tell us about the first of all about the ge the geographical journey that you took. Well, the geographical journey. I mean, it was um, it was just such a privilege, and I went there with a sense of real gratitude and kind of open mindedness. I didn't want to go with too many expectations. Um, what I knew about Argentina was what I'd heard about it, which is that it's an incredible place physically with a vibrant cosmopolitan Buenos Aires and stunning uh, parts of what's a very large country and a very, very friendly people. Uh, the other thing I knew about Argentina was Borges. <laughs> and so I went there somewhat with the attitude of when you meet a person, I had good intentions and good expectations. Uh, and what I wanted to do physically was to get to know something of Buenos Aires um, so that I would know it not only as a, as a reader because I'd encountered it through literature but also as a writer and then to go into a more rural part and see how that differed and to put myself farther out of my comfort zone and as regards going to Buenos Aires um, I was 
I confess, a little bit disorganized, so that it was only when I was flying over that I read uh, Mariana's wonderful collection, Things We Lost in the Fire. I was reading it and a guidebook about Argentina. That was my read. It's, I had plenty of time on the flight over to read. So I read both of these books, and I really, truly believed that between the glossy, sanitized, factual book and the more imaginative uh, but real-seeming, characterful and nuanced fiction, that this is the book that gave me a better idea of what to expect in, in Argentina. And so I was looking forward to meeting Mariana, and I knew we would get on well. I think we both, we didn't, yeah. you don't know until you meet somebody, but I think we both felt we'd get on well. And we just had a, I would say, a life-enhancing, literature-enhancing, memorable, inspiring, uh, sometimes challenging, but rewarding, and um, I think amazing time. And I think this, I feel like I'm still at the start of the journey. Yeah. Graham, I think we've got some images uh, that Mariana took. Perhaps you can just scroll through them as we're talking now. I, th oh. I think, first that's of all, no? Yes, yeah, that's, when, that's the, well, well, you know that, that's the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> but, the, but the thing is that that's the one Borges bought for, for his, um, he used to be a librarian. And uh, we went with Kevin to the library. It's a very, very small library in the southern part of the city. It's called Boedo. And that, that is, and that's Kevin finding Stevenson's book, that uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's book that Borges bought for the library too, because Borges filled that library with English books. All that until Perón, that was the president in the 40s, said, "We're not going. You're not going to be a librarian anymore, and you're going to be an inspector of eggs and chickens, and uh, really, and right. fire him from there and put his mother in jail." Uh, that's where the Stevenson book was. They keep it like that. Uh, that's in the south of uh, Buenos Aires, Adrogué. That place is kind... The south of Buenos Aires is kind of a post-industrial thing, quite awful. I was born there, so when I say quite awful, believe me. <laughs> and, uh, Not because you were born there. No, no. And uh, that it was an island that is uh, Adrogué, that is the nice place where Borges used to have his uh, summertime place. That's Borges and that's Bioy Casares, but not for real because they're dead. <laughs> but they are in a, in, a, in, a <laughs> in a bar that's called La Biela that is quite famous, and they used to hang out there. That's Kevin again with the, with the William Blake Tiger and uh, Borges in the museum in Adrogué. And uh, that used to be part of a hotel that you, Borges used to hang out. They, they threw it down. That's all is left for it. And... Uh, and that's just a haunted house I like. <laughs> that it's in Adrogué. Apparently, there's a man living there with, uh, with her daughter and doesn't let her go out, but I don't know. I, I will write something about that. Okay. I think so. Uh, and I, I'm, going to say, I'm going to say something more about the picture of the two, the Borges and Bioy. I've, I've incorporated it into something I'm going to read. Yes. Also, strangely, a coincidence is the bar that we visited in Adrogué, mm -hmm. a gentleman called Billy Suarez from Spain. He bought that bar uh, and he was a huge Borges fan such that he bought the edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica that Borges loved that we saw a photograph yeah. of. And then he bought this bar before realizing that it's the inspiration for one of Borges' stories which made him feel even more excited and Borges himself would have loved that kind of strange 
coincidence. Yes, the story is called the South. So as, as you could perhaps tell already, uh, Kevin arrives from Scotland full of excitement and full of plans and projects about Borges, Stevenson, f- head overflowing with what he already wanted to do. Um, when you arrived in Buenos Aires and started to look around you, did that confirm your, your expectations of what you would do or did it completely wipe out what you'd imagined uh, and something else replace I think, it? I think insofar as the, the Borges, I had two main ambitions in terms of literature. I, I think that the, for me the lasting legacy of this has to be books, not just personal experience, not just semi-ephemeral social media posts, but books. This is a book festival. I love books. That's why I became a writer. Yeah. The Borges thing was amazing. I, I, had, I, got, I, I mean, I love Borges. I know nobody's perfect, and he was sometimes quite a strange character. Um, but his whole life story is fascinating, and there's a lot of parallels with Robert Louis Stevenson. And uh, one of the strange things, about, uh, many, many strange things in Borges' life, incidentally, is that he was appointed the sort of um, director of the National Library of Argentina yeah. in the 1950s, by which time he was blind. And he said, so he was surrounded by 900,000 books, but now he was blind. And he said, God gave me books and night at one touch. Here's the remarkable thing. He was the third blind man to be the director of the National Library. Everything about Borges' life is, is fascinating. But that's very Argentinian too. Yeah, <laughs> and very wonderful. I mean, it's, it's just all narrative. Um, and I, I, I kept just becoming more and more impressed with, with Borges and the, the, the wonderful strangeness of his life and his ideas. And one of the really unforgettable things f- for me was on my last night in Argentina, Borges' widow, Maria Kodama, opened up the Borges Foundation and gave me a guided tour and this was, this was phenomenal I mean I just couldn't believe it. My other main um, plan was oh, oh, and, and this book was the result it ju- this book was conceived by Borges and Bioy Casares before I was ever born and arrived just in time for the book festival on Thursday it's the Borges and Bioy version of Robert Louis Stevenson it's their choice of in their opinion his best essays Stories and fables. The fables are especially good, I think. Um, and I, I give quite a long introduction in which, which I explain why this tangible aspect of link, a bridge between Argentina's literary heritage and ours, it already exists, but nobody knows about it. These are three major names in world literature. It ought to be well known. So I hope that this, I hope to shine light on this bridge and use it to strengthen the literature of, of both. So um, this book was the result of research that I did there and at the university where I work, and it was a kind of labour of love. My other thing was to do my own writing and to work on a novel, and so I went hiking in some supernatural mountains. Okay, okay hang, on, hang on now, you're racing, racing oh, yeah. too, too far <laughs> ahead. <laughs> and then I went up in a UFO. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's just let everybody uh, d- d- distill the fact that what you've done already you hyperactive man, <laughs> out of this project <laughs> is to make possible the publication of uh, an anthology of stories by Robert Louis Stevenson, which was imagined by Borges and his, and his friend, but yeah. never published. That's and right. you have brought it into existence. Yeah, a, and it never existed in Spanish. They, they had a translator lined up everything. They tried to publish it in the 60s, right up in, until the 80s. But I think it was because of the aforementioned economic declines, you know, publishing... Houses didn't want to take a risk. But I think this 
Borges, one of his many bizarre, wonderful, outlandish, and yet when you read him, strangely convincing ideas, is that a writer creates his or her own precursors. He has an essay called Kafka and His Precursors, in which he proves that Kafka influenced writers who died before Kafka was born. <laughs> Bear with me. Um, <laughs> taking that as a cue, what I tried to do in my introduction there is to show that if we look at Stevenson through a Borgesian prism, a new Stevenson emerges that sheds light on Stevenson's work and on Borges's. We don't automatically make this connection because we think they're writers from different eras, different cultures, but there's a reason Borges mentioned Stevenson so very frequently and called him a personal friend. They never met, they couldn't physically meet. Um, so I explore all these kind of ideas because this is something that I think Scotland and Argentina should be proud of. It's a kind of literary friendship that's really intriguing. Mm. I, why this book? This book, I think it's disgraceful that this book has never previously appeared. I, I think I'm trying to right a wrong. And both Borges and perhaps even more so Stevenson, their kind of literary prestige, as is probably human nature, fluctuates somewhat through time. And Stevenson in particular, there was a period in the 20th century when he was really disparaged by Leonard Wolf, Tom, uh, Edwin Muir, plenty of writers really disparaged him and now he, I think he's getting a bit more of his critical um, acclaim that he deserves. And Borges too, um, his, his, his writings go in and out of fashion mm. slightly but I think there's a kind of timelessness in both of them. Yeah. Thi this, it seems to me, gives us a kind of historical backdrop. This, uh, perhaps, perhaps I certainly didn't realise the connection between Borges and Stevenson and, and the interest that Stevenson uh, held for, for Borges. Uh, I'd like to just fast forward, really, to, to now yeah. um, and ask you, Mariana. Um, you, you, you've got this Scotsman arriving. You've agreed to take on this, this odd project in which, which a Scottish person is going to arrive in Argentina. Yeah. And he's going to go on a journey, and, and you're going to have some kind of agency in that and be involved in that. Yeah. How, how did you see this arrival of this man who, who was arriving with his head already full of Stevenson and Borges? Yeah, well, the, the email exchange before was like Stevenson, Borges, UFOs, bikes, <laughs> Buddhism. Uh, somehow everything was related to Borges uh, because Borges wrote about Buddhism too, and you know. But I said, okay. But mostly, <laughs> <laughs> but mostly I said, okay, I think, because I wrote a story years before, like in 2009. I tend to, I really like genre fiction. I really like, uh, uh, you know, horror fiction, fantasy fiction, but I can't help, I think it's because of my culture, to put a lot of politics there. And sometimes I'm tired of it. I'm like, oh, again, I'm going to talk about the disappeared, the dictatorship, the police violence, the violence against women, the, you know. And uh, it's inescapable. But I wanted to escape from it. So I, I went and picked uh, the, the myth of the changeling that I got from a Robert Kirk book. You know, Robert Kirk, the, cler the clergy, how do you say? Clergyman? Clergyman. Yeah. Um, that is a story about a child that is taken by the fairies and another one is put in its place that looks the same but it's not the same. 
so I wrote a story about that. It's kind of a zombie kind of thing of children <laughs> that escaped, that, 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 that ran away and came back. And then uh, a f- kind of friend of mine made me realize that I was, in a way, talking about her brother. And when I say her brother, I will have to do bear with me a little bit because it's difficult but it's easy. In the last military dictatorship, the generals kidnapped people and also when the, their children were very young, they took the children too and gave them to another families. They did that not only out of cruelty or because they were perverse, they were, but also because of uh, ideological reasons. They wanted the child to grow, to grow in a family that wasn't a leftist family or basically a peronista family. That is something that we are not going to get into because I don't understand peronismo myself, although I think I am a peronista, but I don't know. <laughs> but it will, be, it will be like ages. We can, we can you know, have dinner here. <laughs> so, uh, and then I realized, yes, I'm, I took this, you know, to me, very uh, far away story in every way and ended up talking about my history and writing about my history again. And it's a history that it doesn't end because people are like, maybe are obsessed with the disappearance in the dictatorship, but really when I was 21, one of my friends when I was growing up and, and, and uh, studying in the university was disappeared by the police and his body has not been found. The policeman that uh, disappeared him are in jail because it was the, the, the crime they could prove that it was committed, but his body is not there. I can go to a cemetery and put a flower for him. And uh, 10 years ago, the same thing just happened in the southern Argentina with a guy that was protesting in a, you know, some problem there with the originally, uh, originary peoples, the Mapuches, that are the people that are originally from, from the south of Argentina. And he still hasn't been found, and people are looking for him. And apparently, the, the military took him too. Uh, so it's very present. It's not something that is from the past. This is something that the security forces keep on doing, and it's not a wonder that I'm, I'm writing about ghosts, ghosts and disappearances and haunted houses, because it's like politics created ghosts. Yeah. But I, I have to say, um, I'm, I'm aware of Robert Kirk's name, but I have to confess I... I've never read Robert Kirk's yeah. writing. I don't know. I'm uh, weird. W- uh, how many people in the audience have read Robert Kirk? One. Uh, one, one, two, two or three dozen, hands. Yeah. Here is a, a woman from Argentina who, who takes a Robert Kirk story about, uh, about fairies and about changelings and so on and turns it into the inspiration for a short story. How on earth did you find out about Robert Kirk in the <laughs> first place? <laughs> well, um, in the 90s, uh, there was a lot of... Uh, quite cheap books that were printed in, in, in Europe that we could afford. Now they're very expensive because the econ- economics... Well, we could have dinner again and I could explain you <laughs> economics. <laughs> but in the 90s, it was easy. And, uh, and I really liked... Uh, I like folk stories. I like uh, ghost stories. I like that kind of thing. And uh, it was there. And I bought it. So a, a piece of uh, pulp fiction in Argentina was one of these Robert Kirk books. Yeah. Fantastic. And so, yeah. and so when this Scottish t- 
stranger arrives for this kind of literary blind date journey, <laughs> you'd discovered in your own history a, 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 yeah. a, a connection to Scotland that you maybe you'd yeah, it never occurred to me, no. Yeah. Yeah. But it was strange because I, I read that book here in Edinburgh when I was at university. He knew who he was. Right? <laughs> of course. <Yeah. laughs> but, uh, and we had another connection too, a kind of odd Scottish connection. Mariana's got a new novella out at the moment, which is called in Spanish, This is the Sea, and which is named after... Uh, Water Boys record. <laughs> I was in love with the singer. <laughs> For real. <laughs> <laughs> Never met him. <laughs> 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 okay, I, I just want to. Uh, in a moment, we're going to hear some of the of the writing that's been inspired by this journey. But I, I just want to complete the journey first. After Buenos Aires and its environ, Kevin, you took a journey by yourself because you wanted to get out of the city, across the pampas, and into the countryside. Tell us just a little bit about that journey you made. Well, I called it um, going farther out of my comfort zone and into the twilight zone because I went, first of all I went to Cordoba, then I took a three hour bus journey into a very small and very I think by any standards unusual place called Capilla del Monte which is a kind of um, it, it's got elements of Glastonbury, Findhorn uh, about it, it's, it's a beautiful small town not cosmopolitan and multilingual the way that Buenos Aires is much more challenging for me and in that case interesting as a writer because I had to inflict my terrible Spanish on everybody and not be one of those uh, uh, people who expects people to speak English um, and in this, in this area there are these amazing mountains and I went hiking in the mountains but there's a lot of lore associated with these mountains there are um, little people who live in, in the mountains that only some people can see them Erks uh, and they have there have been mass UFO spottings over these mountains. If you're to believe what the local tourist boards say. Uh, I mean the local people. It's kind of a, maybe a mixture of Loch Ness Monster and um, kind of... Uh, what intrigues me about it is the how far sometimes people will go to believe something, even if it's very, very implausible. That's the theme I, w I really want to write about. Yeah. So my idea was to write about something in which a woman in the highlands of Scotland disappears and then reappears in Argentina and she belongs to a UFO religion and such a thing exists, it, it amazes me but um, so many things do in life and that's what I kind of like to write about. Yeah, and I, I need to interject here uh, that, w that we're obviously tracking the journeys of the writers very carefully and all the journeys were, uh, were going acro across the Americas at the same time. And we began to get uh, text messages and direct uh, Twitter messages from friends of Kevin's saying, we're really worried about Kevin. <laughs> he's in the mountains and he's extremely ill. Seriously, <laughs> he, we are un we're, we're scared that he might die. Can you do something? Because he, we fear he's about to disappear and leave us entirely. What, what was the truth of that? What was going on? Okay, the truth is aliens are real. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, no, I didn't realize that. I mean, I was... Um, something I wrote about in, in, the, in, the, in the Outriders book, part of my travel journal is in here. One of the, th one of the things about life is you, can, you think you can plan a journey, but things will happen. That's part of the fun of it that you don't expect. And I did fall ill. And um, more than one person locally there said, not entirely jokingly, it was something to do with the energies in the mountains. 
Um, I did fall ill, and I was really, I was really quite ill. But I learned a lot from it. And I wrote about those things in the book. I learned that I'm not scared of death for one thing. I, I didn't know what was wrong. In fact, at the beginning, I thought it was just a cold. I didn't really want to see a doctor. Hotel staff, amazing, were saying, "Oh, see a doctor." I was like, "No, I don't need one." Three days later, mm. yeah, okay. Um, and I did fall ill, but it was actually quite a good learning experience. It was a another part of the adventure. It, it took really you to some sort of extreme place, I think, which yeah. perhaps made it more profound an experience than it, than it would have been otherwise. It, it was even more indelible. Um, and there's just a short paragraph that explains in Outriders what I learned from it, because I did learn quite a, a lot of interesting things about, about being ill there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was, it was just part of the journey. It's yeah. part of life's journey anyway, yeah. being ill, you know. So uh, I think at this point it, it would be good to, to ask you, Kevin, whether you would like to read, perform, deliver uh, something which has been inspired by this journey, one of the first pieces of uh, writing which, is, which has come out of the Outriders Argentina project. Sure. I would like to invite uh, Miss Irene Rose from Lewis to come and join me on guitar. Shall we leave you to it? Oh, you can stay there if you want okay. to. Yeah. All right. Are you happy to play here, Irene, or are you going to play over there? You're going to play there? I might use the lectern. Okay, so this is um, a piece of writing called Makar. Buenos Aires, at a vertical distance, as seen from my plane, or perhaps from a UFO, is vast, teeming and beautiful. Between the airport and the city itself, the sky is such a brilliant blue and the sun so large and golden, the impression you get is of a country that represents its flag. On entering Buenos Aires, you are immediately, if happily, lost in one huge, bustling maze. Small wonder that the image we associate most with Argentina, Argentina's literary genius Borges is a labyrinth. Odd that everything here feels appropriate, as if predestined, or perhaps by virtue of infinity, inevitable. A couple of days later, acclimatized to the pre-winter heat, more or less unjet-lagged, I meet Mariana Enriquez in La Biela Cafe, where we drink coffee and make smiling reference to the pallid statues of Borges and his friend Bioy Casares, seated forever at a much-photographed table. They look like corpses, says Mariana. At least it wasn't the coffee that killed them, I say. This is delicious. Anyway, I add, raising my cup, here's to Argentina's living writers. As we clink coffees, I notice Mariana's notebook, its cover is mesmerizing, a gothic pattern of swirls and stars and shadows and buildings and Spanish words and what seem to me expressions without a face. That's a hell of a notebook, I say. What, what do those words mean? It says, an infinite notebook is a notebook that contains all notes. Where did you get it? Mariana pauses. There's a man who makes them but he only makes them for, pe for people he knows. So I don't suppose I could... No, give it a try. Here, I'll write down his address. Don't tell the book festival or the British Council you're going into this area. 
<laughs> the following day, I leave my watch and other valuables at the hotel <laughs> and venture through the labyrinth. At long last, I come to a dark, narrow alleyway. The door is answered by a thin old man with intense eyes and a dyed black goatee beard. He ushers me into a cold, dim room that smells of age and leather and ink. I'd expected him to be difficult somehow, but he speaks good English and tells me he would be delighted to consider making a notebook for me. Then he stares at me and frowns. But what is it for? The question momentarily flummoxes me. Um, writing in? Notes? Observations? No, he says, be specific. For one thing, I want to keep a travel diary. Yes, that's it, a travel diary, he says. And he begins muttering to himself in Spanish. All the while he nods and gazes at me. At length he ceases and I ask how much it will be. Don't worry about that, he says. We can arrange that later. I thank him and start to leave when a thought occurs. When will it be ready? It will be at your hotel reception tomorrow morning. Muchas gracias, I say. As I retrace my route through the labyrinth, I reflect on what a nice and helpful man he was. A little eccentric, but I like eccentric people. Still, I have an uneasy feeling in my chest. Something about his manner was a little too nice, too inquisitive, too oily. My chest tightens. I didn't tell him the name of the hotel. Or did I? I can't remember. I suppose I can always go back to his workshop. But the following morning, a telephone call at 8 o'clock informs me a package has arrived at reception. I collect it and unwrap it in my room. The aroma of leather is strong, lovely, nostalgic. The patterns on the cover are similar to, but also different from, the ones on Mariana's notebook. There's even what looks like a map of Scotland. I turn to the beginning of the notebook to write my name and email address and find with a shock that someone has already done so. Was this meant to be a personal touch? The handwriting is relatively neat, but not decorative. A bit like my own, but on a good day. How did he know my email address? It feels like an imposition, as if a waiter has helped himself to something off your plate on the way to your table. Later that day, I plot a route and go for a run through the wider sunlit streets of the Buenos Aires labyrinth. And when I get back to my hotel room, buzzing with endorphins and sentences and the heightened sensations of being in a new place, I type the following update onto my Facebook page. Quote, 10 km, 10 kilometer run through Buenos Aires, done. One of the best ways to get to know a city is to feel its dust under your running shoes. The daydream rhythm helps with writing too. I love that writers are so much less likely nowadays to conform to the old sedentary stereotype of being always seated at a desk or pub or cafe, as though mental and creative well-being are not intrinsically related to the physical. As Murakami said, being active every day makes it easier to hear that inner voice. What did I see on my run? Poverty and wealth, joy and sadness, nature and artifice, bound together just as they are in Scotland. Miraculous how travel dovetails cultures. And we realise, like the physical and the mental, they were never really separated in the first place, but interdependent in this life. End quote. 
After a shower, I decide to write down some images and ideas in my notebook, and my stomach lurches when I turn to the first page and find someone has handwritten my status update verbatim on the first supposedly blank page. My heart tightens. I stare at the words. Is this some kind of game? A cold fever spiders over my skin. I look about the room, mystified. Somehow I feel it's not a prank. I'm reluctant to tell anyone about this, lest they think I'm insane. But try as I might to solve the mystery, no solution presents itself. I place the book in the room's safe and sit down to meditate. The next evening, I come back from the day's adventures and post the following on my social media site. Quote, So, today I began by going for a long run through Buenos Aires, through a cool drizzle, then a breeze, then sun. Afterwards, I showered and walked off in a seaward direction, on a mission. Buenos Aires is, of course, a port and an islander always gravitates to the sea. If I hadn't seen the sea while here, I would have felt like I cheated myself. But the place I was really aiming for was Parque de la Memoria, the Park of Remembrance. That glorious sparkling sea is the same sea into which bodies were hurled from planes during Argentina's troubled past. And the Parque de la Memoria honours the memory of those tortured, killed or otherwise disappeared in acts of state-sponsored terrorism. It's a deeply moving place and leaves you with a lasting jolt of horror of man's inhumanity to man and gratitude. I am alive. I have been spared this far. I need to do something worthwhile in this life. End quote. I decided not to open the safe and look at the notebook, but after an hour of agonizing prevarication, I inevitably can no longer help myself. I open the trembling book and of course the words are there on the page, handwritten, dreadful. Fear burns through me like a flu. That night I barely sleep. The following morning I awake groggily and almost before I know what I'm doing I pick up the notebook which I'd neglected to put back in the safe. The pages part and reveal a new piece of writing. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The piece is only one paragraph long and has a title, Voice. A woman with a lovely calm voice goes around the tables selling sweet delicacies. No one wants them, everyone buys them, because of her gentle voice. No one who speaks like this deserves or must ever know evil. Someone at every table purchases unwanted sweets from her. Someone at every table falls in love with her, or rather with her voice, as, sh as though she, or rather her voice, when it moves away from the table, leaves the tiniest of melancholy sighs in its place. When she leaves the restaurant altogether, a form of emptiness descends. And then the diners all look around, quietly desolate. It makes no sense until I'm dining in a nondescript restaurant that evening in the Palermo district, and suddenly the door opens, a smiling woman enters, and a cold wave of déjà vu runs dizzily through me. That night I cannot sleep. I put the light on and eat the sweets the woman with the sweeter voice sold me. I switch off the light. At length I click the bedside lamp on and read Borges until dawn. His thoughts often chime with my own and I wonder why. For example, in his perfect short story, The Immortal, Borges wrote, We accept re reality so readily, perhaps because we sense that nothing is real. He believed that all writers are the same person and that person is no one. I get out of bed and go to the safe 
press the new medical password into it and the door flicks open. I bring the notebook to bed and I think. I force myself to write in it. Tomorrow I shall visit the man who made this monstrous book. Thus resolved, I find it easier to go to sleep. Who is it who goes to sleep? And where do we go? These are the thoughts drifting inside my head as I myself drift away. Asleep, though not knowing it, I dream a story my Buddhist teacher once told me. In this story, I am both observing the monk and being him. The monk is at a multi-faith conference. Between lectures, he escapes to his room to sit in meditation and say a prayer. And when he's doing so, a Christian nun inadvertently barges into his room. Oh, I'm sorry, she exclaims. I thought this was my room. I think I'm next door. The monk, who is not yet me, smiles. Don't worry, he says. The nun is about to turn round when something halts her. Forgive me, she says. Aren't you a Buddhist? I thought Buddhists didn't pray. Who are you praying to? The monk, who looks like a bald version of me now, says, no one. The, nod, the, the nun nods uncertainly and makes to leave. But once again, she pauses. Forgive me again, but if you're praying to no one, what are you praying for? The monk, who displays a minimalist version of my mannerisms, says, nothing. The nun gives me, the monk, a look and leaves. Just as she's opening the door to exit, I call out, oh, the nun whirls round. Yes, I smile. There's no one doing the praying either. The next morning, I wake up with a sense of fulfillment and purpose. I take my shower, coffee and toast slowly so as to enjoy them. I'm ready to face the strange man and ask him the questions in my mind. I'm happy. Only a country like this could have given birth to a Borges. I decide to meditate in my room for an hour before, follow before following the labyrinth to the notebook, notebook maker's workshop. I sit in meditation with a calm intensity. Thoughts arise and pass away. I myself arise and pass away. No such thing as a core of self. No such thing as a fixed, unchanging self. People say it's all good, but what they really mean is, it's all just as it is. What this moment is missing? Nothing. Aware suddenly of a presence in the room, I turn. The housekeeper has entered without knocking. She looks familiar. She stares at this foreigner sitting on a Zen meditation cushion in front of a portable Buddha. Before I can say anything, she frowns. Forgive me. Are you a Buddhist? I thought Buddhists didn't pray. Who are you praying to? For a few long moments, I shake my head, then hear myself mouthing. There's no one doing the praying either. It later transpires the notebook maker has vanished. It is only the narratives that remain. Tell you what, can you move that lectern back out of the way so we get a nicer sight line for some of these people in the front row? Lovely, thanks. Thank you so much for that, Kevin, and uh, thank you as well. Um, now, I, I want to open this up to questions, but just want to turn to you, Mariana, yeah. and ask you briefly about the context again. Um, my visit to Buenos Aires last year revealed to me this extraordinary community of writers. Yeah. Uh, you're one of those writers, many of them women, not all, but, but a large number of them women writers, of, of which you could call a new generation of, of Argentinian writing. Do you feel that, that there's this 
a surge of something happening in Argentina? I, I think there is a surge, yes. I tend to uh, react to any kind of label because that's in my nature, I'm difficult, uh, but, <laughs> but it's true. And when yeah. it's true, it's true. And um, I think it comes from many, from, uh, from many factors and probably are too many to list. But um, uh, there's many, there's many women. One is Samantha Shrebling, the there's another one here is Gabriela Cabezon Camera that's just been translated into yeah, English and she has an excellent novel. Gabriela is in the audience today, I think. Uh, somewhere. And, and is appearing yeah. at the festival as well. Hi, Gabby. She's very good. And, uh, and she's nice. Somehow <laughs> not nice. And, uh, and uh, but there's also guys, I don't want to, you know, but there's, I think there's a strong sense of community, of course. As in any community, there's little petty competitiveness, probably, but it's not very obvious, and there's lots of readings. Like, you can go to a concert, but you can also go to a reading, and almost the vibe is the same. And there's reading of short stories, there's competitions of poetry, um, there's, uh, you know, writers that are reading their own stuff every night, or every weekend at least, yeah. and uh, people that know each other from years, and people that have learned to write together, that went to workshops together. We don't have creative writing in in the in university. It's only in the last few years. But you have these workshops where, where we have workshops with other writers, yeah. and not but not just you know the nobleman writer or, or the or the lady writer, but also sometimes a, pe a, a peer, some someone like us, and we. Yeah, uh, th th there's also something which I heard about, which I think is called carne argentina. Yeah, which means Argentinian meat. Yes. This is a, a literary it's presentation. A yeah, it's a, it's a it's a group of friends. Gab Gabriela knows more more than than me, but it's a group of writers: Alejandra Sina, uh, Selva Almada. That is, she's translated already, I think, too. Yeah. Uh, uh, Julian Lopez, and they basically they are like curators. And every every season, they like choose uh, people to read and introduce uh, new writers and writers that are not uh, that that are more established. And they get all together in a venue, like it's like it's a bit like a rock concert. There's music, there's to drink, and and there's the readings. And it's a very vibrant young thing nighttime, going on. Nighttime yeah. readings, nighttime readings, yes, and more than a hundred independent publishers. Yeah. In the whole country, of course, in Buenos Aires, are most of them are in Buenos Aires because we are a, a country with a head like this and a little body. And um, but uh, they're, they're in the provinces, there there's still quite many independent publishers that are very good. Yeah. So, so against this backdrop of, of what we know about of dictatorship, the emergence from into a young democracy of femicides, of disappearances, and so on. Yeah. There's emerging this extraordinary, vibrant literary scene Yeah, where people are getting the chance to write what they want uh, and be yeah. published as well. Well, it's, it's, it's a very, I, I think it's very free in a way and in another way not because it's a country of contrasts. You have all this, the, the state violence, the extreme inequality, Etc. But also, you, if you go to some places of the city, you will get the, the impression that this is kind of Madrid or Paris or something like that. And then you walk a little, and it's a slum. And uh, 
and the literature I, I think reflects that a bit yeah. that contrast it's, it's, it's a literature of contrast and of the strange vitality yeah and one last quick question from me before I open up to you for your questions which is that of all the writers I met when I was in Argentina last, last year I, I would ask them all who they who were reading and who they were influenced by and nearly all of them that I asked that question to named writers both from Latin America and from Europe yep. and from North America the, the writers in Argentina are extremely widely read is that, is that the correct perception that this, this very I international reading list that you I, I think so we were raised uh, basically on a diet of uh, European and I, I, I dare say mostly North American literature yeah. uh, United States literature is my big influence uh, and uh, of course of course, Latin American, because our parents are the boom people. Our parents are Garcia Marquez age, more or less. These are the people that they read. So it's that these three extraordinary traditions, the North American, also the, the, the European, because our, um, some of our heritage is an immigration from Europe. So th there's a relation there, and then our parents are the people that were alive or reading the latest Latin American literary boom in the 60s, Garcia Marquez, etc. Yeah, so you've got this legacy of uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and magic realism and so on, but also this great internationalism. Yeah, and, and our people that are totally different, like Borges, Bioy Casares, Silvino Campo, that are like the Rio Platense, yeah. the River the de la river, Plata river people that, are, that have their own thing. Yeah. But what this means is that the writing which is coming out of Latin America and Argentina particularly is very understandable to a European reader. I, I it, think so, yeah. Which means that the conditions are right for, this, for a new generation of Latin American writers to explode into the European scene now that they're starting to be translated into English. So, so you are one of the first of a number of writers that we're about to, to welcome from Latin America in future years. So you're the, f the forefront of the, <laughs> the because revolution. Because, and this is very short, what also happens is that someone from my generation is not only influenced by literature, it's influenced by music, it's influenced by television, it's influenced by, I don't know, cinema, it's influenced by all kinds of things that are like the, in, like the global pop culture that we all share. It's a reference that we all share, being like, of course, I'm a writer, I'm like um, the middle class of the world. So uh, that that is that 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 thing is too. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Over to you. Um, questions from the audience. I can see one at the front already. Any others? Well, so we can just see where we're going to go next. Thank you. Uh, it's fascinating. I once read that Argentina was more Eurocentric than any other Latin American country because to the south is the Antarctic, to the west is the Andes and then the Atlantic, and as you said, many of the immigrants in the mid-19th century came from Europe. Uh, is it true? Uh, do you think that Argentina, out of all the Latin American countries, is more Eurocentric than, than, than other countries? And, and do you think that's why we've got this connection? It, it, is a, it is a difficult question because I think it's true that we are more Eurocentric, but it's also the matter that we believe that we are. Uh, like uh, we, 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 we d it's uh, the bit of the arrogance of being like the white people. That this is something that ashames me a bit, 
the white people of, of South America, and that makes the people that are not of uh, European descent a bit invisible, and their culture invisible too. But uh, it's true and it's not true. It, it's, bo it's both things. But we believe we're the we believe we're Europeans. Europeans. Yes. Right. <laughs> Another question here on the second row. Uh, the other thing that was always said about Argentina was that uh, an Argentine was a, uh, an Italian who spoke Spanish and thought he was an Englishman. It's the and same, yeah. And, and uh, you know, uh, the question of Argentine identity has been kind of a long story, but I remember you talked about the aftermath of the Dirty War. Yeah. I remember the campaign that the Hijos ran in, I think, the 1990s, which was those posters across Buenos Aires which just said, Quien sos? Which yes. is the who are you? Which is the reference to the disappeared children and the question of not knowing either how complicit you'd been or who you were or what kind of the country made of itself in the aftermath of the dirty war. And I have a sense from your writing that one of the ways of dealing with this is is fantasy and genre fiction. And I just and you see it in cinema also in, in contemporary extraordinary cinema coming out of Argentina. Mm. Yeah, great and question. I I just um, I would I just like to hear your your thoughts about that question of Argentine identity, never quite Latin America, never quite you know, no, not quite related to its deep past or its recent past, and if that continues well, to be the thing that 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 spurs your writing. Well, I, identity is, is a big it's a big theme. In, in our everyday life, uh, still uh, people uh, keep this uh, keep appearing. No, but it's it's not just that. It's, it's really, uh, and at the same time, I think we we are a, a nation that ha that has an identity. But um, yeah, it's difficult. I I wouldn't I I I don't have an answer that is very definitive to that because I I think we have a very our identities fluctu is fluctuates, and uh, that's fascinating and it's hard at the same time. And identity is a theme; it's a theme in our lives, which for other people is much more. You know, this is where we are, but where we are is more complicated. It's complicated, and, and very sadly, we're out of time oh. for this part of the event. Um, Everybody who's come to this event uh, is entitled to and welcome to take one of these Outriders books that we've produced, which is a, a taster of some of the writing that's already come out of the Outriders project. You can continue your conversations with both of the writers and also pick up your book by going to the signing tent attached to the Bosco Theatre, which is just along the road, about 50 metres in that direction, back towards Charlotte Square, where if you line up then we'll give you books and you can have them signed if you wish and, and discuss more with the authors. Uh, this Extraordinary Outriders project has been uh, also uh, organised by Jenny Niven, my colleague who was the director of the book festival in my absence when I was on Man Booker Prize duty. And it's also funded by the Scottish Government's Expo Fund. Thank you very much for coming. And thank you to thank you. Mariana Enriquez and Kevin McNeil. Thank you, Kevin. Let's um, head to the shop. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for EdBookFest. The next book festival is on from the 11th to the 27th of August 2018.